is RJ McGill from the American Academy in Berlin, and you're listening to Beyond the Lecture. We have a special show for you today, one that's about a few different things. On one level, it's about a man who unexpectedly finds out he's the last guardian of a lost language. On another, it's about questions of heredity and how much responsibility we bear for the transgressions of our ancestors. But it all starts with a little boy in Nuremberg who discovers a thrilling secret language. So my uncle was in love with his language. That's all I, I knew. That's Martin Puckner, a professor of comparative literature at Harvard University and a spring 2019 fellow here at the American Academy. In the story he's telling us, he's about seven years old. He enjoys visiting his uncle's house in Nuremberg because that's where he can experience a language that no one else in the world can speak. And he, in a sense, injected this language into the family. And so we, would, we wouldn't like have full conversations in it, but he would teach us expressions, phrases, words, which we would then bandy about. The language Puckner is talking about is called Rotwelsch. It's said to have been spoken by thieves and vagrants across Europe as far back as the Middle Ages. Rot is a word for beggar. Welsh can mean in German Italian. It's derogatory. It's old-fashioned and derogatory. But in this context, it means incomprehensible. So this language was called the incomprehensible cant, cant or dialect uh, of beggars. That's what Martin really loved about Rot Welsh the fact that it felt so exclusive and that he was brought into it by an uncle whose entire way of life was, well, fascinating. It was mostly going there that, that this language came alive because my uncle had this fabulous study. It was full of musical instruments. He was also a composer. And all these books related to Rotwelsch and, uh, you know, the milieu, histories of Yiddish and all of that. Uh, he also had this, I love this, uh, this contraption that allowed him to lie with his back on, on a couch. And he created this contraption where he could like suspend books above his head on this kind of glass thing so he could lie on his back and read. And so this is my, my image uh, uh, that he would lie there with these Rootwelsch books suspended about, above his head. That for me was the sort of ground zero of Rootwelsch. Martin's uncle was consumed by this thieves' language. He would visit dive bars at night in the hopes of finding someone, anyone, who could speak it with him. He compiled dictionaries of it and translated works of world literature into it, even though he was practically the only one who could read it. He translated bits of the New Testament and even the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet. Lady, by yonder blessed moon I vow that tips with silver all these fruit tree tops. Or swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon. And here's the Rote Welch version. Ich gable Körnchen bei der Kautzken Lamp, die Eisbär bleckens dieser Höhlinge. O gable In these small sections, you can already identify some of the influences of the language, such as Yiddish. You can get a sense of its mischievous spirit. As Martin puts it, Rote Welch would take ordinary words from other languages and twist their meanings. So if we look at this passage, you can see what a strange language mixture is. So there are a couple of small words, Echen, small words that are clearly German. But then a lot of the main terms are, are from other languages. So deer, hippiker, uh, comes from Yiddish, chiba. Uh, the, the one I really like, important for the scene, is to swear, swear not by the moon. The, 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 the Rotwelsch term here is gabel, 
which is derived from the German word for fork, gabel. But in, in root Welsh, it means to swear, because if you raise your hand in a vow, it looks like the, the prongs of a fork. So this is, this is what to swear means. So you see, the, the, that's how the, how the meaning of these words is sort of twisted around. This is what I meant by the mean demon. It's like someone takes these words and does funny things with, with them. Martin didn't know it at the time, but these formative experiences would lay the foundation for what he would study in college, and they would in some ways shape the contours of his professional life. What I ended up really studying uh, was the philosophy of language, uh, literature, especially the more sort of complicated modernist literature, James Joyce and these kinds of figures. This is what I found myself uh, attracted to, literature that you needed to decode. Many years pass, and... Wrote Welch slips from Martin's mind. But one day, when he's doing graduate work in Harvard's Widener Library, it comes back. I can't focus on what, whatever I'm doing, reading Ulysses or looking at some strange reference in Finnegan's Wake, something like that. Uh, but I can concentrate on it. So I, I start to think about, oh, wow, Widener is so great, and it's you know the third largest library in the world. Uh, and then it occurs to me, I wonder whether it, this library is so good that it that it would even have my grandfather's works. His grandfather was a historian of names. His work was rather obscure, so it was a long shot that the library would have it. But if any library would, it would be Widener. So he takes an elevator down into a sub-basement section of the library known as Pusey 3, which has rows and rows of sliding stacks. Then you had to walk through this basement corridor by piping. It, does, it looks like you already left the library. It's sort of this underground tunnel. And then you have to take another elevator even deeper down. And so that's Pusey 3. To his amazement, he finds something. You know, lo and behold, they, they have some of his work, Karl Puchner. Among his grandfather's works, including his dissertation on the patron saints of monasteries, Martin finds an article from 1934. And I suddenly come across this passage, which is about Rotwelsch. The, the word sort of jumps out at me. And so I start to, at some point, I start to read this, this article, and I'm confused. The, the article is called Family Names as Racial Markers. Martin keeps reading, and he recognizes just how anti-Semitic this article is. He's talking about how Jews use German names to, to hide. He coins the term camouflage name for this phenomenon, and he sees that it's, it is a huge problem. Martin's grandfather, Karl Puckner, offers his own expertise as a historian of names and even proposes that Jews be banned from changing their names. Before this moment in a sub-basement of Widener Library, Martin had no idea that his grandfather held any of these beliefs. Finding this article was doubly shocking because on the one hand, it, it, it opened up this whole question of my family history and especially of this grandfather and clearly his involvement with the National Socialists. And, and the other, even stranger uh, question of what Rootwelsch, this language, had to do with it. In this and other articles, Martin's grandfather seemed to want to eliminate Rootwelsch because of its connection to Yiddish, and thus to Jewish culture. Martin has questions about his family that cannot be answered by his grandfather or his uncle, because both of them have passed away. 
Instead, he visits his widowed aunt. She still has her late husband's massive rote Welch archive, all the dictionaries and translations, notes and etymological tracings. The problem is, she doesn't, doesn't really, really want to talk, talk about, about it. it. For her, it's associated with her you know, dead husband, uh, and there, he had sort of left her at some point. And also clear that, uh, that she felt that this whole Rotwelsch business had, in a sense, derailed his life, derailed his career. I mean, he, for the last 15 years of his life, that's all he did, is compiling more and more uh, uh, dictionaries and, and translating works of world literature like Romeo and Juliet. Uh, in, into Rot Welsh, which no one knows how to read and no one cares about. But she says, you know, uh, I'll, I'll show you the boxes. And she goes up to the attic and there are all these boxes and, and, and they contain this, my uncle's life's work, essentially, namely his Rot Welsh archive. And I started to go through this archive and it had notes in his own manuscript. He published a few things from it, uh, translations, correspondence with publishers where he tried to explain why he felt like it was so important to revive this language. In any case, so she said, you know, you're interested in this. You have all these questions. I want to talk about it. But here, have it. Take it. I don't want it. And this is how Martin's journey with this archive of Welch begins. Though he is grateful for all these boxes, for years, he doesn't know what to do with them. All he knows deep down is that he doesn't want to be far away from them. I had, you know, I had to move it from one Somerville walk-up to another Somerville walk-up. In the late 90s, I moved to New York. I started teaching at Columbia. Back to Cambridge. To Ithaca, New York. And within New York. back to Cambridge. I mean, I, I, I must have moved these boxes 15 times. Over the years, Martin's academic career focuses on languages. He becomes general editor of a six-volume tome of comparative literature, the famed Norton Anthology of World Literature. That's when his interest in Rote Welch, this language from his childhood, is rekindled. He soon discovers that it's older and much richer than he imagined. It existed in the, in the late Middle Ages, and, and I was even more surprised that one of the first people to write about it, or I should say write against it, was Martin Luther. It, it, it remained obscure. It was not written down. The only people who wrote about it were its enemies, like, like Luther. But Rotwelch didn't just have enemies. Writers such as Franz Kafka, for example, loved Rotwelch for its cheeky, subversive qualities. Martin also learns that Rotwelch has informed various idioms and expressions. For example, the phrase, to be in a pickle, comes in part from Rotwelch. In fact, Martin is shocked to find traces of Rotwelch in popular culture and even on American TV. I'm watching the first season of Mad Men. There's sort of halfway through, there's this episode that's a flashback when the protagonist, John Draper, he's growing up in the, in the Great Depression uh, with his stepdad, his evil stepdad. So where do you go? Well, tomorrow I'll... The boy Don Draper is talking to is a drifter who works for his evil stepdad. The drifter draws marks on a post that warn others not to come to this house. This is how we talk to each other. On the front gate of every house, there's a mark. It's a code, just like you heard on the radio. This one here, that means a dishonest man lives here. And I almost jumped out of my seat 
because I recognized the sign. Martin says that these signs weren't quite a language. They functioned as a code. There are about sort of 40, 50 signs that help itinerants navigate the road. They would tell you, you know, you would tell each other, you know, you can go there and maybe you'll, you'll, you'll get some food here. Or if you work, you'll, you, you'll, you'll get a quarter. Or in this case, avoid this place because you'll be cheated. After finding out about this rich Rotwelch history, Martin becomes even more determined to find out why his grandfather hated it so much. With this goal in mind, he heads to the Bavarian State Archive, where his grandfather's entire history is stored, including the Nazi parts. He didn't purge this file. It was in his archive. He could have easily uh, uh, eliminated it or, or taken stuff out. But no, and I know that he was invested in it because after long after his retirement, he, he gets some honor. He becomes like an honorary member of the International Association of Names or something like that. And he, he sends this honor, he sends a letter to the archive saying, please add this to my file so that my file is complete. Leaving this paper trail was particularly risky after the war because the country had embarked on a denazification process, which could have cost Martin's grandfather his job, or worse. But the desire to be a thorough archivist was irrepressible. Martin identified this obsession as the same kind of obsession his uncle applied to preserving Rotwelch. My uncle stays a bohemian. He is a composer, really. He composes avant-garde music and, and a sometime writer. Um, and but then more and more the music drifts into the background and Rotwelsch takes over and that's I can't help but think that my uncle's devotion to this language must have been a form of atonement or even revenge that he chose of all things to devote himself to the the language my grandfather Hated. This devotion was reincarnated in the third generation, in that Martin had inherited the archive and now too was studying the language. Well, it, you know, I, I, at some point I decided that I wanted to write down that story in, in, in a book that I currently call The Rotwelsch Inheritance, because that's what it is for me, this inheritance, and it means connecting back my own interest in language, uh, in literature, and, and also in having migrated to America with, with this history of Rotwelsch. But I think maybe more difficult for me was to, of course, to grapple with the political inheritance, uh, with what my grandfather had done. By the phrase political inheritance, he's referring to his grandfather's Nazi past and how it reflects on him. This discomfort becomes palpable one day when he's chatting to his aunt about his Rotwelch book. And so she comes to visit me, um, and um, I tell her a little bit about the book, and, and she stops, and, and she says, your grandfather would be so proud of you. And it, when she said this, I was first surprised, and then it sent chills down my spine. Because I realized that in the story I've been, I'd been telling, I, I turned my grandfather into the villain of the story. Of course, the Nazi, the one who hated Rudwelsch, the one against whom his sons had to rebel, and so on and so forth. Um, 
But I realized from that phrase, and I'm sure she's right, that yes, in a certain way, we are a family of archivists who keep these files. My grandfather, of course, was an official full-time archivist. Then his son, my uncle, was a writer, creates on his own uh, an archive about Ruth Welsh, which, which I inherit and then carry around with me and then add to it and start my own archival research into Ruth Welsh. And, and so clearly, uh, in many ways, I'm my, my aunt is right. I, I'm, I'm my grandfather's grandson. What's fascinating about the Puckner family story, like many family stories, is that each member is unaware of how they are affecting the next generation. The grandfather didn't know his hatred of Rote Welch would inspire his son to try to preserve it, and the uncle didn't know that by trying to preserve the language, he would inspire a nephew to want to study it further. The uncle also didn't know that in his search for the last speaker in all those dive bars, he had already created him in his living room decades prior. You know, part of this thinking about how I fit into the story uh, is to realize that that I've, in a way, inherited m- my uncle's hope to rescue this language. Uh, I, you know, I'm not a a, 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 a native speaker of Root Welsh. In fact, most people weren't native speakers. They would learn the language when they drifted into the underground. But I think I'm... I'm as good as it gets. Uh, I'm I'm the last one who's at least grown up around it, albeit in this indirect way through my uncle. He was searching for the last speaker in these dive bars, not really finding true speakers of Rootvelsch, but he didn't realize that in teaching me this language and 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 assembling this archive, he was creating the last speaker, namely me. You've been listening to Beyond the Lecture from the American Academy in Berlin. Our producer today is Tony Andrews. You can hear more of our Beyond the Lecture podcast on our website, americanacademy.de. I'm your host, RJ McGill. Thanks for listening. <laughs>